Welcome to Grad Life by the Horns, the bi-weekly podcast covering all things grad life. Hosted by me, Becky Hills. And me, Sophie Scully. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Grad Life by the Horns. We were thrilled with your feedback to our first episode a couple of weeks ago with Akil and Rahim and it was so great to hear so many of you planning to implement their financial tips and tricks. And if you didn't have a chance to listen to that episode yet, definitely go back in our podcast feed and have a listen because it's such a great episode. For today's episode, we had the joy of being joined back in January of this year, all that time ago at the beginning of lockdown three, by Tim Hyatt, the head of UK residential at Knight Frank. For those of you who don't know, Knight Frank are an international property consultancy and estate agency business who I also happen to work for. And I actually interviewed Tim this time last year for the first episode of my podcast with Knight Frank. And as soon as I'd finished interviewing him, I knew that he would be an amazing guest for this show too. Unlike the vast majority of our guests, Tim didn't actually go to university, but he offers such a fresh perspective on both the arguments for and against a uni education. He discusses why he sometimes regrets not studying for a degree, instead going straight into full-time work after leaving school, but also touches on why he thinks he wouldn't be where he is today if he'd followed that more traditional route. Both Soph and I left our conversation with Tim feeling utterly inspired and almost overwhelmed by his honesty and vulnerability. So this episode is a really special one and we hope you love it as much as we did. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome back to Grad Life by the Horns. Today we are joined by the head of UK residential at Night Frank, Tim Hyatt. Tim, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Hello both. Uh, lovely to be here on this wet, drizzly, COVID miserable morning, but let's try and lighten up with having a chat with you with you both. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's, it's a very January blue sort of day today, um, but let's definitely get some optimism and some positivity in there. The first question that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast, um, just to get an insight into what's going on in your life at the moment, is What's gone wrong recently? We've kind of been back at work for a couple of weeks now. Is there anything that's gone wrong so far? Um, yes. Sending three kids back to homeschooling, like the, probably the whole of the country has done. Um, and everybody trying to share the Wi-Fi while having a kitchen knocked out, uh, a temporary kitchen put into our sitting room uh, and trying to get everybody up and running. Uh, that's it on the personal front and, and on the work related front going into uh, what is it our third or fourth lockdown um, with anticipation that from from my world of estate agency uh, and quite rightly frankly if I'm being honest uh, estate agents uh, are still allowed to remain open but in my mind we should all be closing just to get over this final hill of having everybody behaving and let the vaccination take over and beat this this horrible virus or second strand of virus in fact gosh yeah that that does sound chaotic and i think definitely from kind of relating on a work perspective it is incredibly stressful and overwhelming at the moment um but on a more positive note what's been going on in your life recently what good things have been happening well i think the the first thing like everybody or like most of us especially in in the sort of working world of like frank uh, have had a break and the residential market, which is the part of the business that I look after, which is 1,250 people across the UK, it's 68 offices and a whole different, whole range of multi-disciplines. It's not just estate agency, it's land sales, development, etc. The market has been 
ridiculously busy and it's taken us all somewhat by surprise. We came out of the second lockdown um, and it was on fire and it's remained ever since. And the reason I'm saying that is leading up to Christmas, I think that we were all beginning to, to reach mental and physical exhaustion because it was so much busier than we had anticipated. And everyone trying to do their J job in very unusual circumstances, you know, working from studio flats, ironing boards, kitchens, sheds, wherever it might be, but working very, very hard. So the, the biggest thing that's been going on in my life is just being able to step away. And the great thing about Christmas uh, in all of our worlds is we can just switch off. Uh, from a client or customer perspective, no one tries to get hold of us over the break. And it's the only break of the year, really, where you can properly relax. So for me, plenty of time with the family, uh, doing a bit of Lego, uh, probably drinking too much, eating too much, learning to play golf uh, and getting out and about, getting some fresh air, which is which is nice. Well, thank you so much, Tim. And from what it sounds like, I'm I'm very glad that you got a very well-deserved break and you managed to relax and have a bit of fun over the Christmas Christmas holidays. So just let's take it all the way back and think about when you first started your career. And I'll, we would be so interested, interested to know what first stirred your interest in property. Do you know what? I don't, I don't think it did. Um... When I was at school, you know, you start hitting 15, 16, I guess, uh, and beginning to have through various education sources or whatever, chats about your career and your future. And look, frankly, I didn't have a clue. Uh, I think the one thing that I put down on, on my application was that I wanted to be a pilot. And actually, to the day, I still want to be a pilot. Uh, I've got it in me. It's certainly on my bucket list. Um, and I don't quite know why I followed it through. I had a Saturday job. Uh, I worked for a retail uh, outfit. I, well, my parents moved to London from, from Guildford. So I came with them uh, when I was 15. Uh, when I was 16, my dad said, look, the great thing about life is, is you've got to be self-sufficient. You've got to learn at a very early age. It's the only lesson I'm going to give you, Tim. Learn from a very early age to stand on your own two feet. So I got a Saturday job working in a presence shop on the King's Road. Uh, and then I left that and I got a job working for a business called Tyrac, which was a men's retail outlet. It was in all the sort of tube stations and mainline stations and the airports. There were like mobile pop-up stands and they would sell ties, ties and ladies scarves. And I fell into that uh, doing Saturday jobs and that just about paid my very minimal overdraft, but kept me ticking over while I was at school. I went to school in London. I went to Emmanuel, did my A-levels, and I was set to go to university, um, which I still regret, but I'll come back to that. And the managing director at the time came in and said, oh, you know, how are you doing, Tim? We've heard good things about you. You seem to really enjoy it. It's a shame you're going. I assume you're going off to university. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, learning, I'm probably going to go and do French and business studies because I'm learning to uh, speak French fluently. And he said, well, really, that's interesting. Well, we're trying to open our European network uh, of franchises in Paris. We've identified a franchisee, but we've got nobody in the business that can speak French. So we're really struggling. And I joked and I said, well, look, I can speak French. And he said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to, do you want the job? So I gave up my applications uh, to go to university. And it is a regret in life. But again, I'll, I'll come back that I didn't go to university. And I went straight into that. I think I just turned 18, maybe 19. Got on a plane, went out to Paris. And I lived in Paris for 
18 months, opening two franchises right in the city center of Paris and two shopping centers. And that's really where my career started. From a property perspective, my father was in real estate. He had his own uh, estate agency in South Africa, which is where I was born. Uh, they came back in 72. I came back with them. I was what, four. Um, and my brother in London also worked for uh, the old Knight Frank, uh, sorry, the old Marsh and Parsons uh, partnership. Um, so I kind of had property in the family and I, and I always knew it was something that I could do. But I was growing up too quickly at Tyrac. I spent four years there. When I came back from Paris, I went into their UK operation. I became their operations director. So I was, you know, I was 21, 22, and I was so overgrown in terms of my age and personality for for what was going on in real life. I was in a I was in a position that was well above my station, and I said, you know what, I'm growing up too quickly. I've missed out on university. I've missed out on having that social interaction with people of my age. So I went travelling to South Africa. Uh, for eight months with a mate uh, and then I came back and I had to find something to do um, and my brother played squash with John Hunt who's the or was the then owner of Foxons said my brother's coming back do you have a job he said yeah send him along to have a chat and I had a three-minute interview and you know 27 years later here I am still in the world of of property so I wouldn't I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that there's anything that's that sort of naturally drew me into property. It was it was as pure and simple as needing to pay my overdraft, pay for my trip, and get a job. And sometimes it is that simple, isn't it? Sometimes we find ourselves getting into careers that aren't necessarily where we would um, see ourselves going in the first place. So that was so interesting. There's so much awesome stuff that you've just said there. So thank you, and. I would love to just highlight something you said around your regret about not going to university. And we recently had an episode which was called To What Degree, where we spoke to graduates about um, to what degree do they actually use their degree. And it was really interesting, the different kinds of perspectives. And hearing back from what you were saying there and how you felt like you were almost growing up too fast because you had these friends that went to university um, what do you feel is the main thing you you missed from going to university? And on the on the other side, what do you feel like you have that your friends don't have necessarily from not going to university? Look, I could, I, I could probably talk about this for an hour because it 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 dominated my personality and my character and my life and my thought about my life. I think that there are two different routes with university. You, you can go down one route where you are driven either yourself, self-motivated or with an influence from your parents at the time because they're the first people you really tend to turn to. And you can go down a, a formulaic route of, of with the outcome that you want to go into banking or law or the medical institutions, whatever it might be. And that is that for me is an academic route about university. And I wasn't really... In, interested in that. My, my point about university is growing up with people of my age and sharing experiences with people of my age within an academic background, which is what university gives to you. It gives you that first step of leaving home, that first step of having to be independent, cooking your own meals, doing your own washing, uh, going to the pub, 
getting into trouble, making a few mistakes with a bit of academia thrown into the mix. And that was that was the route that if I'd gone to university, I would have gone down. And actually, I've got a parallel now with that because I've got a I've got three kids. Uh, one's 11, one's 14 and one's 17. And at the moment, she's beginning to fill in her university application forms. And we are not pushy parents when it comes to to, to their results. I think one thing I've learned, but I, I still feel slightly imbalanced from a social perspective. And this is the point that I was saying, what I wanted, what I know that I would have got out of university, which would have made me even more grounded, is personally, I love people. And actually, if you want to go into the world of a state agency, or in fact, into any job that relates to sales, you've got to be able to connect with people. And I know that I can connect with people because I love people. Um, they fascinate me. I just find at times socially uh, and at work, I just miss a slight beat in terms of what the people I believe are like at university because they've had that experience. It's like a sort of pattern in life that you follow that I didn't follow. Uh, and, you know, I grew up too quickly. Uh, I was glad that I looked at self in the mirror. You know, there was, a, there was an element of self-flattery. I was thinking, God, you know, shit, I'm 21 years old and I'm operations director for Tyrac. You know, I was probably earning, I was earning good money back there and I was 21 years old. So I had all the trimmings that my mates didn't have. But I was speaking with people that weren't of my age level. You know, I, I, was, I was 21 and I was telling, you know, bright, educated people in their mid 40s how to do their job. Um, and it just wasn't right. So that, that's, that's the regret I've got about not getting university, if it answers your question. Yeah, no, that's, that's such an interesting perspective, because I think a lot of the time when people talk about not going to uni, they talk about it in a very positive and sort of, I didn't go to uni, but it hasn't hindered me in any way. So I think it's interesting to get the perspective of, you don't think from necessarily from a career or academic perspective that it's, it's had any impact, but from a personal and social perspective, it's had that impact. And I think it almost goes back to, to what you were saying about your your father saying to you that the most important thing in life was to be self-sufficient. And it sounds like you almost became too self-sufficient. Do you think that was the case? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like that. It, it was taking on the challenge of life and making sure you could stand on your own two feet. And look, I see a lot of kids. I interview a lot of kids. I've got a lot of friends who've got kids now of that sort of age that, that who want me to see them so I can see what they're like and give them some hard truths. But I can tell you something, I don't hold back. If I feel that there's there's somebody that I'm seeing that's a wet drip, that's got no personality, that hasn't got any drive, that is totally reliant on their parents, I, I tell them because, you know, it, it, it's a wake up call. Um, you know, it, it staggers me and it makes me laugh sometimes when I look at my kids. And all parents do this. You look at your kids and you think how much you do for them and how much you provide for them. And then you hear them moaning about this or moaning about that. And you really do turn around to yourself and say, you guys have got no idea how lucky you've got it. <laughs> you've got no idea what's coming down the track. So that's why I believe the earlier you can make yourself self-sufficient, the better. My daughter, I think out of all three of the kids, my eldest daughter has got my sort of personality. Uh, she's not driven academically, but I know that she's a real people's person. Uh, and she's only just, well, she started working when she was 16, you know, Saturday job, local shop up the high street, learning to interact with people of all different ages and types, learning what to say, how to sell. And I think that's, I think that's great. It's really important. 
Uh, thank you for sharing that, Tim. That's um, really interesting. And to think about you, the early stages of your career when you um, were at Foxton's and your role was predominantly in sale, you say you um, you love working with people and that came quite naturally to you. Do you find that sales is in particular a very young role um so a lot of young people go into that role because they're quite highly driven and they want to get somewhere and earn some money quickly or do you feel like it's quite a diverse field i think it's probably quite a diverse field foxons back then was in its absolute heyday it was it was an extraordinary place it was the powerhouse of all estate agents and it was the go-to place for young energized positive and ambitious individuals and i guess foxons for me in the early years was my university it, it, it was great you know I'd, you turn up you had absolutely no training uh, and, and you walk in and i remember with the interview with john he said look if you want to go and earn 100 grand you can go and earn 100 grand because what i'm going to do is i'm going to give you more applicants to speak to who want to to buy or rent houses i'm going to give you more properties to sell or let than any of the competition i'm going to give you a mobile phone i'm going to give you some car keys and all you've got to do is speak to these people all the time get them into your car show them property and either sell or let them as many properties as you can and if you do that if you sell them 10 properties in a year you're not going to keep your job if you sell them 30 or 40 properties in the year you'll keep your job and I'll upgrade your car and I'll pay you a little bit more commission. And if you want to earn 100 grand being 21, 22 years old, no problem with that because I will earn half a million pounds in fees to the business. And that was the ethos of, that was the ethos of Foxton's. Did it drive a certain type of person? Yes, it did. Did it drive the same sort of person? Yes, to a degree, it did. Were there people sort of fresh out of a university? No. There were people that are either out of school or had a gap year or gone traveling that just needed something to, to hit the ground like me and get get running. But it but it was a great, great institution in terms of commercial entrepreneurism, drive, ambition, financial return, fun, most importantly, fun. Um and it, it was it was brilliant. I you know in all the interviews I've ever done about my career, I look back on it and, uh, you know, I speak very fondly about my time at Foxton's. Mm, and that sounds like such a, an exciting and interesting way to start your career. And looking comparatively, obviously, now you're almost in a sort of John Hunt position, but at Night Frank. At Night Frank. How do you go about that telling those people who are at the early stages of their career and just getting into it how do you go about having those sorts of conversations that that john hunt had with you with the people that are starting out at the beginning of their careers at night frank now do you talk to them about being incentivized by by sales or by by lots of different kind of very more material incentives or is it more about the client experience and setting yourself up in your career for a more balanced perspective rather than just looking at the purely material side of it well look, the first thing to say is i'm not john hunt um and actually john and i couldn't be more different john was or is an extraordinary uh entrepreneur um he is a details man he is incredibly focused 
He's incredibly driven. But one aspect of his machine was to make sure that he could motivate and drive people to get deals on, on the board. And, you know, there's a really good example that I remember having a conversation with him. It's not about if I went in to see him and he said, you know, Tim, how's it going? So John's going really well. I've got this one big deal under offer and, and it's it's a million pounds. It says a million pounds back then. You go, right. You know, and he would give you a slightly dismissive look. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not interested in that one big deal. In fact, if you don't get that deal over the line, you lose your job. If you come in and say and you've got 10 small deals under offer, then I'm really interested. So go off and do what you can do. When I when I look at the people that I see now from a, from a young age that come in, I, I, I take, and we can come on to this probably in a bit, I, I take all the good bits out of everything that I've learned within my career. Um, and I put that into the mix of what I encourage people to do at a young age. So I say the first thing you've got to make sure that you do is be comfortable about making mistakes. You've got to make mistakes in life. Otherwise, you never learn. Um, as somebody once said to me, you know, that's why cars have bumpers and pencils have erasers at the end of them. Two, look around and listen. Listen and observe. That's how I've got to where I've got to, by taking the very best out of the talent that I know in management and the people that have done very well in business. Learn by what they're really good at. Watch what they're really bad at. Make sure you don't follow the bad bits. Make sure you follow the good bits. The second point is listen and learn, observe. I mean, I think somebody that's really good that I really like is somebody at a young age that comes in and they get their head down and you don't hear boo from them. And what they're really doing is they're just looking around and they're taking in, they're saying to myself, God, I, you know, I don't know anything about this world that I'm in, but that guy over there or that girl over there, she seems to be really good. So I'm going to spend 10 minutes a day listening to how she does it. And then I'm going to watch what he's like when he goes out in the car with an applicant or what's the body language when somebody walks into the office and how you sort of meet and greet them. Do you shake their hand? Do you call them sir? Do you call them Mr. Hart? Do you call them mate? What, you know, what do you do and what do you not do by also observing the people that you're going to be dealing with and their reactions? And I think that's, that's really important. And I do it to the day, you know, I do it every time I speak to somebody, every time I listen to a podcast, every time I'm in the car, I listen to the people that I think, God, they sounded really good. And then I say to myself, why, why is it? Why do they sound really good? Why do they sound so convincing? And then I guess the final, the final thing is, look, there are loads of things I could say to people. But the other thing is, be honest with yourself. If you're struggling and you can't quite get it right, A, don't worry about it, because you've got plenty of time in life to learn about it, but B, stick your hand up and ask. You know, ask people. Uh, at Night Frank, the business that I look after now, we have so much talent in the business, and so much intelligence through our research teams in terms of the output of what they're saying about what's going on with the market. Just read, read, listen, and learn. And find your right medium. The, the problem that I struggle with is I can't read. I can't read books. I mean, I can read, but I'm, I'm a terrible reader. And if somebody wants to meet with me or see me, they've got to be able to put something down in one page. And they've got to be able to sell it to me in less than five minutes. Otherwise, they've lost me. And uh, that is one negative. I'd love to be able to read and not get distracted uh, so easily. I've got a mind that's particularly active, so I can 
read one document, I can read a paragraph, and then I have to read another 10 times because there will be one thing within that particular paragraph that will send me off thinking about something completely different. Anyway, I, I, I digress, but um, that will give you a slight flavor of what got me going, what I say to young people when they join. Mm, I absolutely love that perspective. I think it's it really highlights the power of of being inquisitive, and I think that it's also really important to acknowledge that I think, as you said, like you don't necessarily have to be the sort of person that reads book after book after book in order to to be somebody who is a successful and be inquisitive. It is all about observing people it's about learning it's about putting yourself out there and be again as you said being comfortable making those mistakes and I think that's something that graduates and from definitely from conversations that we Sophie and I have had with fellow graduates um in their very early stages of their careers or people who we've had on the podcast is that a lot of the time people aren't comfortable making those mistakes and they see them as almost kind of character defining and they say oh but I've done this wrong and so I'm absolutely ruined at the age of 23 and I think it's important therefore to just mm. recognize that no matter what stage of your career you're at, actually making those mistakes is what helps you grow in order to it's like with muscles if you go for a run you're going to create little tears in your muscles but then over time that that's going to build your muscle to be stronger. And the point I'm trying to get onto here is about something I spoke to you about when I interviewed you last time, which is imposter syndrome, which I think often stems from sure. that fear of making mistakes and getting things wrong. So I'd love to get your opinion on whether you think imposter syndrome is actually something that's valuable to people at the start of their careers and that we should almost embrace it rather than try and fight it. Tell me how you would define imposter syndrome yourself. Well, so for me personally, I see it as as going into a meeting and whenever you're speaking, in the back of your mind, you're thinking this isn't good enough. I don't belong to be, I don't, I don't belong here. And it's just that almost that feeling of quite literally being not the sort of person that belongs where you are. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, let me, let me shoot from the hip on this one because otherwise I'm not being open and transparent. And actually we can come back to this because I think Honesty and transparency in life and your business career is is top of the list. Um, and what I've delivered, you know, the, the role that I've gone into and the importance of that in the last nine months, if I say to anybody, what has been the best thing that you believe that you delivered in the last nine months has been being open and transparent. Let, let, let me put some context into answering your question, because it's a really big one in my life and in, in my personality. So I'm 52, just turned 52. Uh, I run uh, a 180 million pound business. That's my responsibility. Um, I've got now in my hands the responsibility of looking after 1,250 people with 200 different disciplines and services that we offer out to our clients around the world in a, in a residential market. Uh, I'm an equity partner of Nine Frank, so I'm one of 60 odd owners of a business that's located in 52 different territories employing tens of thousands of people around the world. I've got no degree. I've got a few dodgy results in my A-levels, very few O-levels, um, but I've got to where I've got to. Every single day of my life, though, even to this day, I'm riddled with insecurity and paranoia. I'm much better now, thanks to some specific training that I had uh, with a counsellor stroke business coach called Amy Iverson. 
and, and I've had that over the last three years. She has made me so much more resilient in that aspect to take this imposter syndrome and, and we refer to it as sort of crushing the crushing the stone uh, and, and removing that self-doubt because it's you know it, it's fascinating if I speak to my wife to my parents to my colleagues you know if people were really hearing this within the world of Knight Frank which they might or might not do they might turn around and think shit seriously you're saying you, Tim, are riddled with insecurity. I would have never known it, but but it's there. And you know, I hate it, and I love it at the same time because I think it 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 has made me the person that I am. So that imposter syndrome there, um, if you've got it, if you suffer from it, take it on, look it straight in the face, and say to yourself, I'm going to do my very best to use you as a friend as opposed to an enemy. Uh, and do your very best to keep it to yourself because there's some vultures out there who play on insecurity. Um, and I've had that done with me many, many times. I, I've had people try to take me on and get me out for all sorts of different reasons of the positions that I'm in because they think they can do a better job or they're insecure or they're more insecure themselves. They're like the schoolroom bullies. So don't don't be frightened of it. Embrace it. Some people don't have it. Some people do have it. Some people will probably have it for their life. But I think the best tip that I can say for the people that have it, when it crops up, just turn around to yourself and say, so what? You know, so what if that meeting didn't go so well? So what if that person sitting in the back thinks you're a complete joke? So what if that person says, I just don't understand why that guy's got the position that he's got? You will get to where you've got to in life by other people identifying your strengths and weaknesses. And you will, you will play and make that position for yourself as long as you believe that actually underneath all this insecurity, there is somebody there that has a lot of good to offer in whatever shape or form that might be. And as you can probably tell, you know, that's something that is um, very passionate uh, in my thought process. Wow, Tim, thank you so much for sharing that. I can't even explain how um, valuable that would be to our listeners to hear, especially your openness around, no matter what the stigma is surrounding um, senior people and businesses, they still have their own insecurities and there's still a backstory to that. And it's looking below the surface, isn't it? It's the iceberg theory that everyone has their own beliefs and values and so yeah. that is awesome. And it also plays to what you said previously around what you speak to, how you speak to young people and how you motivate them and how it's okay to make mistakes. And the important thing is to listen deeply and be curious and ask for help. So that is awesome. Thank you. And just to... Um, I got quite emotional saying that, funny enough. I wow. Have to say. So, quite choked. Yeah. I, so uh, it, it, it's definitely deep-rooted. It's definitely deep-rooted. I'll just go pick up on one thing that you said. Uh, one other lesson about life is when you make a mistake, the, the, the normal rule of thumb is don't make the same mistake twice, especially in, especially in business. But if you read any of the business novels or you speak to people, that's one thing they say, you know, get, get out there and, and, and experiment, you know. Um, 
that the, the guys that have really succeeded to the top have probably been the guys that have made the most mistakes because you you know that's how you learn yeah great bit of advice thank you so much so I um and sorry I interrupted you a bit there as well because I would like to say I was getting a bit choked up because um really appreciate your vulnerability there. It will it will do the world of good to our listeners and to Becky and I as well. It's such a breath of fresh air to listen to. So um just with a little, you know, nice little nostalgic spin on it, what would you say have been your favorite memories of your career so far? And obviously predominantly working in the um property industry? You know, there are a number of ones that, that, that stand out. When you had the sort of imposter syndrome, uh, one thing that's really important is recognition. You know, again, like, like my daughter, I'm, I'm the sort of person, not that I should need it. And you have to be careful about this one. But I know that if somebody turns around to me and says something positive about what I've done, they'll get 110% out of me. If they're critical or negative, uh, or undermining or intimidating, they'll get the worst out of me. It's as simple as that. Um, so one of the things where I was recognized, I believe, for my efforts that really landed the most uh, was when I always made an equity partner at Knight Frank. I mean, I can go a lot further back. You know, it was when I hit my first car target at Foxons and I got a Porsche and, and I had another thing where, yeah, sure, it was money motivated, but I was a kid, so money was big at the time. Uh, then when you you know you get to buy your first property um or uh, i bought a watch for myself um which had a whole long story to it but it was something that i really really wanted to have yes it was aspirational yes it was a little bit materialistic but it, i i was told by somebody i would never be able to get the watch and when somebody says to me you can never do something i love that and i always take that on as a challenge i did it with smoking i did it with I've done it with all sorts of different things. Sorry, I digress. So getting made an equity partner at Knight Frank was a very big thing for me. Becoming or being able to believe that uh, I'm an owner of this or a part owner, sorry, of this extraordinary business that I work for, this independent debt-free real estate firm, which on a global platform, love that. My career uh, uh, and where I've got to with all this adversity, but fundamentally uh, at, at, at the front, there's no point in having any of this if you don't have the roots of friends and family. So I think that's the high, the fact that uh, I'm still married, I've been through all sorts of highs and lows, but I've got a wonderful wife who who um, is as accommodating and an, uh, and fair as she can be about you know the, the trials and tribulations of, of my day job. I've got three fantastic kids who are pretty grounded. And, you know, and that's an achievement in life in, it, in, in its own way. I have two very different lives. I have my work life um, that goes at one pace and then I leave that and I switch off and I come home and I have a completely different life. Throughout all this, you'll find that there's a common thread. The thing I love about my career and I love about my life is people and seeing people go through their lives and get better and better so I can see it privately with my kids uh, and I can see it at work with the talent and then looking around I mean my my the way that I approach business and business growth is I go into one office here one office there one office there in say 24 hours and I listen to everybody you know whether they're the 21 year old graduate or administrator or, or the 55 year old sales broker it doesn't matter 
doesn't matter where they come from, what their background is, what their origin is, I'm not bothered by that at all. But I just like to find what is the common thread? What's what's the one thing that they might be saying collectively unprompted? So let me give you let me give you one example of about a, a, a business, an element of the business that I created off the back of something like that. About four years ago, I went into one of our lettings offices and I said, what's going on? We had a chat about it. And they said, you know, we've seen a spike in international students coming to rent from us with with pretty big budgets. I said, that's interesting. And then I went to another office and they said the same thing. And then another office and they said the same thing. And I said to myself, what do we do then about making ourselves attractive to an international student relocating from Asia or anywhere around the world into London to go to one of the top five universities in London? We weren't doing anything. So we created a student desk with bilingual teams that could speak Mandarin, they could speak uh, French, they could speak Italian, whatever it might be. And we created this sort of global international student platform. Uh, we made a few mistakes. We got it going. I got these young guys to get involved in it. I gave them a sense of responsibility, which they loved. They relished it. They built the team. And now it generates at times of the year 25% of our rental inquiries. And it brings in over £2 million worth of fees. Now that that's what I love. Listening to people, identifying a trend, doing something about it. That is so interesting, Tim. And just uh, we can talk with you for hours and hours on end about just specifically what you've just said. But I think to um, start to bring the interview to a close, if you can, you started to talk a little bit there about young people getting into property um, and getting on the property ladder. If you were to highlight a one tip or two tips or th even three tips on first time buyers, what to look for, what to prioritize, what would they be? It's such a good question. And um, it's very hard because, I mean, you know, I don't know your thousand um, listeners and I don't know whether hopefully that will become a hundred thousand. It, it's all down to people's personal circumstances. I think some will have the luxury of the, the bank of mum and dad, lucky them. Some will have to do it the hard way. What I would say is this, do whatever you can to get onto the property ladder as soon as you can. Uh, I would probably be five times wealthier than I am now if I had stuck to my own advice. I didn't really actually get on the property ladder until I was about 27. But if I'd had the chance to get onto the property ladder when I was 20 to 21, it would have been brilliant. And look, I can hear people shouting at the at the device or whatever they might be listening to this and saying, look, has this guy got any idea? We've got student debt. We've got, you know, just living in life in general. And, and look, I am absolutely respectful of that. All I'm saying is that the, the more of the struggle, set aside a budget as early as you possibly can to start screwing away pounds, pennies, whatever it might be to get yourself into that deposit. Because the irony about buying property is once you're actually onto the ladder, once you've got the deposit and you bought your first property, you're away to the races because debt is so cheap. You know, before we know it, we might go into negative interest rates, but at, at, at the best of the moment, you're borrowing money at 2%. And when you compare 2% of 400,000 or 200,000 or 300,000 or 500,000, whatever it might be that you, you, you go into at the entry level, you calculate that as an annual payment 
versus rental payments, and my God, you're so much better off. So there is a motivation there, not only because bricks and mortar are absolutely essential and you can, it can really boost your financial security by buying and selling, buying and selling, buying and selling. It also makes life far more affordable. But you've just got to find a way of raising that deposit. So if you do do a Saturday job, take 10% of that salary. If you can, take 10%, put it somewhere else. Take 10%, put it somewhere else. And that's the only bit of advice I can get. Uh, stick to the basics. Uh, stay safe. Um, don't go into fringe areas. Stay close to public transport. Good local amenities. That's really important because you've got to think about the prospect that if you then decide to pack your bags up, go traveling rather than selling it, is the property that you own easily rentable so you can keep your asset alive? So, you know, you don't want to be too far out. People prefer to go by train or by two than by bus. Um, but if you can't afford that, go out into a new development where your running costs will be relatively low because it's new build. You know, it's just tips like that that, that, that would help. Amazing. That's really great advice. And despite being a long way off ever buying property myself, I think our listeners will find that really useful, especially those who are a little bit further on, along and looking to get into buying their, their own property. And to round off the conversation, there is one question that we ask all of our guests. Tim, how are you going to continue to grad life by the horns? I'm lucky that I've just taken on this new role running the residential business. I'm very privileged that I've been given this role. And actually, uh, even though the last month, nine months have been extraordinary, um, it's been fascinating. It's been incredibly rewarding. But above all, it's been very exciting and fun. So I've had a reboot. Um, so I've got plenty of life in me and in the tank um, at Knight Frank within the equity. If you're an equity partner at Knight Frank, uh, at the moment, there's a mandatory retirement age of 60. Um, so I will be out at 60 and I've got lots of things I want to do. I am a very good potterer. I'm very good at going around the house, doing jobs, uh, sweeping, hoovering, making stuff, walking, exercising, doing trips. I have got no concerns about uh, the next stage in my life. I mean, I've got eight years left on that. Um, am I somebody that's going to carry on working until I'm 70, 75, 80? Uh, like some of my colleagues, no, I don't think I will. Uh, I think I want to hit 60. And I, I think that gap between 60 and 70, I'm going to absolutely go for it. I'm going to have a blast. And I'm going to do it with my wife. Part I'll probably do it with my, uh, my kids if they're around, but I want to travel. I want to see the world. I want to, you know, I want to take this sort of ignorance in terms of my academic ability and, and test myself. You know, when I say I, I can't read, I want to find a way of forcing myself to be able to read. I want to learn more. I want to digest. I want to spend time with people in different cultures. You know, so I, I want to learn to fly. I want to do a marathon. Uh, I've got a whole bucket list of things going on in my head. My head is always fizzing about things I want to do. Um, but you've got to just manage your time, manage your expectations. Take every day as it comes. Don't look back. There's no point in looking back because there's nothing you can do about it. Always look forward and um, enjoy every minute of it. Why not? I don't necessarily practice that, but I think to a listener, if you're that sort of personality, make the most out of it because you only have one shot at it. Uh, it's a great place out there, irrespective of the life that we all find ourselves in. Always try and find fun rather than negativity. That's it.
over and out. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today and for this wonderful conversation. Great. Lovely to speak to you both. Wow, what a fab episode and conversation. Thank you so much, Tim, for coming on and sharing your wisdom and insights. We hope you as listeners took something away from tuning in this week. One thing we definitely did learn and should emphasise more in life is that you don't have to be a university graduate to grad life by the horns. Tim's objective view on what not going to university did or did not do for him, both the regrets and gratitude he has from that and how he sees the university experience today was such a breath of fresh air. Plus, I'm often sat next to Becky albeit virtually, of course, recently, and hear her passionately chatting about the world of property, feeling a little bit out of my depth, I must admit, because I am not articulate at all in any of that sort of conversation. Tim talking about the world of real estate and young people getting on the property ladder was so eye-opening. And I must admit, the vulnerability brought forward in chats about self-doubt, imposter syndrome and Tim's beautiful expression, crushing the stone, was by far a highlight of the episode for me. Thank you, Tim. was a pleasure meeting and chatting to you. As always, let us know what you thought by leaving a review, a rating or dropping us a message on our Instagram channel at gradlifebythehorns. Join us again in two weeks for another cracking episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves and each other. We'll see you very soon.